This is the podcast for RUF at Wake Forest. RUF exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, the lost and the found, the burned and the bored, the cynical and the spiritual. Whoever you are and whatever your story, RUF exists for you. For more information, check out our Instagram at RUF Wake Forest. Now, here's today's teaching. Friends, it is, it's good to be back with you this semester. And um, this semester, as we have our, our weekly meeting together, uh, we're going to be studying the Minor Prophets. And um, the Minor Prophets are 12 small books, hence why they're called Minor. And they are the f- um, in the first part of the Bible. They're the Old Testament. So they're the 12 books at the very end of the Old Testament. And what we're going to do this semester is we're going to read um, one, we're going to look at one book a week, and we're going to talk about the prophet's book um, in general, and we're going to study a key theme, a key passage from that book. And if you are familiar at all with the Bible, you probably realize how unfamiliar so many of us are with the Minor Prophets. I mean, when was the last time you uh, camped out in the Minor Prophets for a quiet time? Or in a class, a professor referenced the Minor Prophets when discussing the existence of God or religion? So my guess is it's probably not recently for any of us. And I just want to give a, a quick plug for the Minor Prophets, why you should listen in um, with us for this semester. So first, they're challenging. These are really challenging books. It's not possible to read the Minor Prophets and then live our lives in the same way. And they're graphic. The prophets contain the scariest threats in the Bible and also the most beautiful promises. And so hence the title for our series, um, we're calling it Postcards from the Edge. And I stole this title from another former RUF campus minister named Doug Servan, but he stole it from Princess Leia or Carrie Fisher. She wrote a book in the 80s called Postcards from the Edge and made a movie out of it. Um, So we're all just stealing from Princess Leia. But the reason we're calling it this is that um, I've never been to the Grand Canyon, but uh, I've received postcards from people who've gone out west. But the, the postcard doesn't capture... Uh, the grandeur of what they describe it being like to stand on the edge of that chasm torn through the earth. And similarly, these, uh, these minor prophets are giving us a glimpse into the awe and grandeur and glory and holiness and justice and grace of God. And each of them gives us a snapshot into God's character. So as we do this together, that's my hope, is that we are going to accumulate these postcards from the edge of, of just awe at who God is and the way he's revealed himself to us. So, um, as we do this, um, what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at Jonah to give us an orientation to what is a prophet. What is a prophet and what is prophecy? So what Dakota read from us from Jonah 3, we're going to use this to help us answer that question. Give us a blueprint for how prophets and how prophecy works. And much of what I'm sharing with you this semester um, and tonight comes from other pastors and theologians, people that I've read and listened to. And tonight I'm especially thankful to a friend uh, who's a former campus minister named Sid Druin. And much of what I'm sharing with you tonight comes from him. So in Jonah 3, we're told that the word of the Lord uh, crosses lands and, and seas and comes to Jonah and gives him one sentence to deliver to a foreign nation. And this sentence is filled with judgment. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And this passage is typical of the minor prophets. And if we pause to consider this, 
this man coming to people he doesn't know and proclaiming to them a message from a God that they don't know, that this God will overthrow them if they don't repent. Um, this makes us uncomfortable. I mean, maybe this is why we avoid the minor prophets uh, in general or in specific, or maybe why some of us read, avoid reading the Bible in, in general is because it makes us uncomfortable. So why is it? Why is it that passages like this and other ones make us so uncomfortable? Why is it hard for us to hear Jonah 3? So I read a study this week that was published in the Journal of Sports Medicine in January um, that found that a third of adults, so they did this study with 22,000 participants, and their estimation is that a third of adults are walking around right now in America with concussion-like days due to stress and lack of sleep. He's saying that the symptoms that people are exhibiting, the name of the article I read was Zombie Nation, because they're estimating that the the symptoms that a third of Americans are feeling right now are the same symptoms that people have when they get concussions. Symptoms of, of being um, numbed out and stressed out. These, these, these symptoms mimic concussion symptoms. And as I was reading this finding and, and thinking about how numb we have become, I heard the Pink Floyd song, Comfortably Numb, playing in the back of my mind. And then um, realizing that, that this, I mean, this study is showing us that right now, People are particularly numb. And it reminded me of this other song. Um, one of my favorite bands is U2. That probably dates me. Uh, but I, I love U2. And there's a ni- 1993 album, Zootopia. And one of the songs on it is this song, Numb. And it, it captures what it feels like to live in a world where we are fed information through screens all day long. And I just want to read one of the lines for you. Uh, and if you remember um, later, Google this song, watch the music video. They do a, in a very 1993 way. They do a really good job of um, showing in the music video just what it, what it feels like to receive all the information received. So I want to share this with you. Um, this is from the song. Don't move. Don't talk out of time. Don't think. Don't worry. Everything's just fine. Just fine. Don't grab. Don't clutch. Don't hope for too much. Don't breathe. Don't achieve. Don't grieve without leave. Don't check, don't balance on the fence, don't answer, don't ask, don't try to make sense. Um, A friend sent me a meme this weekend of, you guys have probably seen this, it's like the ugliest Muppet ever. And it says, um, the caption is, "When when, when the Netflix asks if you're still watching and you see your reaction in the black, your reaction in the black screen, your reflection in the black screen, it's just like, disheveled, ugly Muppet. Um, I was like, yeah, that sounds about right. So it's not just our music or our psychological studies or our memes that reveal just how numb we are. Our discomfort with the minor prophets shows us this too. See, we read Jonah 3 and we disapprove and we flinch when we read that God wants to destroy a whole city. Men, women, children, animals. He wants to wipe the whole city out. I mean, why would God want to do this? Well, who were the Ninevites? Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire in the 8th century BC. And what historians know about the Assyrians is they had what what we would consider today horrible practices for their enemies. They were known for skinning people alive and then burning them alive, or cutting off their hands or their nose or ears or fingers and, and keeping them as trophies of war. And not just men, but of women and children as well. I think one of the dangers of the way that we, 
think about and talk about, or rather don't talk about evil, is that we seem to think that evil or that the people who deserve consequences are like Hitler and mass shooters. Um, Jewish scholar Abraham Heschel comments on our numbness, our, just our numbness to this reality of evil, and he prescribes medicine for it. And the medicine that Herschel prescribes is the minor prophets. And I want to read you something that he says about our numbness in contrast to the minor prophets. He says, to us, a single act of injustice, cheating in business, exploitation of the poor, it's a slight. But to the prophets, it was a disaster. To us, injustice is injury to the welfare of the people. But to the prophets, it's a a death blow to existence. To us, it's an episode. To them, a catastrophe. It's a threat to the world. And here's what Jonah 3 is showing us. It's saying that God, the universe, our hearts, all of these are greater and more important than we think. And and Jonah 3 is challenging us to rub the sleep out of our eyes and freshly consider prophets and prophecy in our own lives. Let me summarize that. Jonah 3 and the minor prophets in these, God is inviting us. He's inviting you and he's inviting me to consider how prophets and prophecy in our very lives work. Simply put, God and the prophets in our lives are far more important than we think. And I want to briefly look at this passage to see this truth about our numbness in two ways. First, that prophets are different than we think they are, and that prophecy, second, is different. Prophecy is different than we think we are. So first, prophets. So reading the Bible might be new for you, and I want to help you understand, if you're unfamiliar with the story of Jonah, where we are. So Jonah opens um, with God telling Jonah to deliver a message to Nineveh, and Jonah refuses. So he actually flees in the complete opposite direction. Assyrian Empire and Nineveh would have been east from Israel, where Jonah lived, and instead he goes due west. He goes to a port city, and he gets a ticket to get on a boat to modern-day Spain, go all the way across the Mediterranean Sea. He's trying to get as far away from God as possible. He's trying to run away from God. And God pursues him. He pursues him with a storm, and then he pursues him with this big fish that swallows him up and then spits him out right back where he started. And don't let this big fish distract you. It's, it's not a major character. It doesn't have a speaking role. The fish spits up Jonah on dry land right where he started. And this is where verses 1 and 2 come in. And I want to read this for us again. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord, Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. From these verses, we see what a prophet is. In the word of one theologian, um, prophets are God's mouthpieces. The word of the Lord comes to prophets like Jonah and then gives them words to speak. Well, how does he do this? What does this process look like? The Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 1, 21 wrote this. He said, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. There's still a lot of mystery in that, about how God's words are spoken by humans. But what's clear is that the Holy Spirit is in charge of the process. And ultimately, this is what God has done in Jesus Christ. He is the Word of God spoken into the world, carried along by the Holy Spirit. In John 1, we're told that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So prophets are God's mouthpieces, and second, prophets are God's lawyers. Look at the kind of man the Holy Spirit guides a prophet to be. 
Jonah is someone who plainly applies God's truth, his laws, to a specific people. Prophets take God's teaching, teachings and then they passionately argue for them. Prophets prosecute and defend God's people with God's laws. They are God's instruments for our change. When you think of Jonah again and, and the story of his life and ask the question, why do you think he ran away from God? Like, why was it that Jonah didn't want to say these words to Nineveh? Was it because he didn't want to predict the future for Nineveh? Or did he run away because he didn't want to be God's meteorologist, having some sort of cosmic forecast for them? No, Jonah ran away because he didn't want Nineveh to know God's law. He didn't want Nineveh to know that they were doing evil and that there were cosmic consequences for their actions. Jonah didn't want to give the Assyrians a chance to turn from their unbelief and the violence that stemmed from it. And commentators point out that it was Jonah's racism, his Jewish supremacy, his ethnocentrism that led him to run away. He didn't believe that God's love and grace should be for anyone other than the people who looked like him and talked like him and had the same culture as he did. So he turned and he ran. In short, he wanted Nineveh to fall he wanted to fall into God, God-ordained disaster because he wanted God's grace for himself and not for his neighbor. So a prophet sometimes does hard-to-believe things. Um, like here in this, this story, we've got Jonah walking into the middle of the city, the great city of his enemies, which would have been the equivalent of, in the middle of the 20th century, a Jewish rabbi walking into the center of Berlin in Nazi Germany and calling for Germany's repentance. Or other crazy things that the prophets do, like Hosea, who marries an active prostitute. So they do crazy things, but verses 1 through 3 assure us that prophets have a very specific function in God's work. They're not like psychics or fortune tellers. Biblical prophecy doesn't look like dark magic or witchcraft. It's not Ouija boards and light as a feather, stiff as a board, um, slumber parties. It's, it, they didn't read tarot cards or crystal balls or read palms. The reason I say all this is I know that all of this is in our, like, our imagination when we think of what a prophet would be. Um, they weren't trying to like, figure out their dreams on their own or in, invent their own message. They worked and spoke for God alone. They were God's mouthpieces, his lawyers, taking God's teaching and specifically applying them to God's intended audience. So as we prepare for the semester with the Minor Prophets, um, I want to invite you to take a risk, uh, to faithfully open your life to God's Word. Not as fortune cookie sayings, but as teachings. Teachings that drive us to Jesus for forgiveness for our failures, and teacher, teachings that drive us to Jesus for the strength for His work in the world. And if the prophets are different than we expect, as we see in verses 1 through 3, then the prophecy also is likely different than we'll than we think it would be. This is what we see in verses 4 through 10. See, biblical prophecy can't only be foretelling, saying what God is going to say will happen in the future. Because look at our passage. In verse 4, if we try to read verse 4 as a prediction, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. If it's only foretelling, only a prediction, scroll down to verse 10. Verse 10, we read, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he didn't do it. If prophecy is merely future forecasts of history, foretelling, then God lied in verse 4. 
But God is not a liar. Instead, what he did was he used Jonah to give the Ninevites an opportunity to repent. They repent, and God turns away the consequences for their sin, at least for a while. I want you to listen to the way that the Bible explains how prophecy normally works. This is from Jeremiah 18. And God says this, he said, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning what I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intended to do it. So what is God saying here about prophecy in general? He's saying that any prophecy of destruction can be reversed by repentance, by people turning from their evil. And this is what's going on with Nineveh in our passage. But notice what he's also saying any prophecy of prosperity can do. It can be reversed too, by doing evil in God's sight. So even if a prophecy sounds like it's a done future deal, it's usually conditional, conditioned on our response to it. And this is because God is a, is a relational God. He does not make these ex-fiat declarations, but invites us into a dynamic, loving relationship with himself. Prophecy is not just foretelling future events like Jesus' life and death, but it's also meant as forth-telling, telling forth, proclaiming who God is and calling people to turn to him and to receive life from him. And prophecy is also different and more important than we think because it points to Jesus. So how do we know this? You probably already know this, but the Bible tells one cohesive story. 66 books, 39 authors, three languages, over three continents, over a thousand years, it tells one cohesive story. And what is that story about? Well, in Luke's Gospel in the 24th chapter, we're given the story of Jesus walking with his disciples from Jerusalem to Emmaus along a road after he's been resurrected from the dead. And Jesus says to them, as they're talking about Jesus' death, he says to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Talking about the cross and his resurrection. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures concerning himself. I love the way that one pastor puts it. He says, look for the gospel and the prophets. If we simply read these books as historical documents, we're missing their greatest intent. If we don't read Jonah or any other minor prophet looking for Christ, we're not reading the Bible the way that Jesus does. This is all about him, the whole thing. It involves some other characters that we'll consider, but ultimately, this entire book points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this doesn't mean that we're going to look for Jesus like a, the Bible is some kind of frustrating adult version of Where's Waldo, like his shoes on one page and his scarf's on the other. But instead, what this means is that we're going to look for the gospel. As we read the Minor Prophets, we're going to look for Jesus in the way that God's righteous judgment melts into his loving and surprising mercy. So how do we do this? Well, let's look at verse 9. Look at verse 9 with me. We're told that the king of Nineveh repents, and he says, Who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Well, in Jesus Christ, who knows turns into we know. God has promised, and he makes it explicit in Romans 8, 21, that there is thou no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Jesus Christ lived the life that we should have lived and he died the death that we deserve, giving his life for those who believe in him so that God can save us from God. And this truth about Jesus transforms our discomfort with the minor prophets into an overwhelming comfort. Because of Jesus, the most terrifying threat melts into the most helpful promises. Jesus gives our numb hearts reason to wake up and come alive. The raging, holy discontent of the minor prophets is transformed into the calming, holier-than-all-others contentment of the greatest prophet, Jesus Christ. To say it another way, in Jesus Christ, we get a view of the way things finally and fully should be. A world without sin and suffering and full of beauty, justice, and splendor. I just want to end with this. Um, So at the start of the pandemic, I knew that I needed to read good books to get myself through this this season um, that we've been in. And so I started by rereading Harry Potter, and then I reread The Lord of the Rings. And in the third book of The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, I was surprised. I think I'd forgotten about this the last time I read this. Um, But I'm surprised by how many pages Tolkien takes up describing life after the ring is destroyed. And it felt like the book should have ended when the ring was, was thrown into the fires of Mount Doom and the Great War was over. But instead, Tolkien gives us a hundred pages of painstaking, gorgeous detail describing the beautiful, just, and wondrous way that the universe should be. And I want you to hear this. I want you to listen to this. Just listen to how Tolkien describes the Shire restored. He writes, Altogether, the year 1420 in the Shire was a marvelous year. Not only was there wonderful sunshine and delicious rain, in due times and perfect measure, but there seemed something more, an air of richness and growth, and a gleam of a beauty beyond that of mortal summers that flicker and pass upon this middle earth. All the children born or begotten in that year, and there were many, were fair to see and strong. And most of them had a rich golden hair that had been bare, that had been rare among hobbits before. The fruit was so plentiful that young hobbits very nearly bathed in strawberries and cream. And later they sat on the lawns under the plum trees and ate, until they had made piles of plum stones like small pyramids or the heaped skulls of a conqueror. And then they moved on, and no one was ill, and everyone was pleased, except those who had to mow the grass. I love that. I just want to ask, do we find descriptions like that boring? Perhaps it's that we're too numb. Not just about the evil in this world, but because there's so much of it, but also about the good that is in this world and will be forever. A good that is different and more beautiful and more just and more splendid and more glorious than we dare imagine. What would it look like for us to get a bit more realistic about God and about our lives and the world and long for the heavens to come to the earth. Who knows? We know because Christ has risen and he will come again to make all things new. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for Jonah. Thank you that you are far more gracious and merciful and kind than we are um, and that you tell us the truth. And Lord, we pray that you would do that this semester as we read Uh, the prophets together. Would you show us these postcards from the edge of who you are in all of your glory and holiness, um, and also who you are in all of your grace and mercy. Lord, thank you for this time together tonight, we pray in Jesus' name.
Amen. We're going to, um, I'm going to give a benediction. And the benediction, this is God's word that he, he, uh, he speaks over, the good word that he speaks to us. Um, friends, you have a king in heaven who loves you and who reigns over you in his love. Here's this good word from his throne. I mean, the love of God the Father and the grace of his Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit go with you and be with you until that great day. Amen.